Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Welcome to the spring reading from the 2020 Emerging Voices Fellows got a Q&A and then we're going to go into the readings and I'm already here with Megan Dorme because I just don't want to be like cutting and splicing things. Yeah. Totally. I'm just not that talented. Yeah. That right? sounds really hard. So this is our new normal anyway. So for the podcast, I'm Amanda Fletcher. We're going to make it sound as seamless as possible. I am by no means a tech wizard, but I want I want our audience to get to know our fellows in a way that unfortunately you're not going to get to in person because of the pandemic. So our first reader is going to be, as I said, Megan Dorme, and I'm going to read Megan's bio. Megan Dorme is a Tongva poet who lives and writes in Santa Ana, California. She holds a BA in anthropology from the University of Oklahoma and works to reclaim and revitalize the Tongva language. Her work has appeared in The Ear, Dryland, and The Offing, among others. Megan is working on a collection of poems inspired by the complicated history of her people. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amanda. I'm How are you doing? Good. Uh, do you want me to introduce myself in the Tongva language? Oh my god, I would love that. Yeah, okay. Niha Netwanyane Megan Dorme, None Tongvet, Honukvetam Kime Washna, Momwa Michepar, so, hi, my name is Megan Dorme. I am Tongva. So, my ancestors are from the village Washna, which is where Playa Vista is today. Um, I am, I'm happy to be here. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for doing that. Mm -hmm. So Brittany Packnett Cunningham wrote an article for Cosmo, and she was talking about, you know, disparity, financial and racial disparity in the pandemic and how it's affecting people and the fact that we are all weathering the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. So tell me, like, how you feel about that statement. (laughs) I feel like there's so many different layers that I could talk about. But, you know, my initial reaction to the pandemic was, I think, I felt like some trauma had been unlocked, like genetic trauma, just knowing that my ancestors had been through so many waves of epidemic and pandemic, like, here in L.A. and... So just like letting myself process that. And then I talked to my great uncle about our family and he had this story about my great, great, great grandmother. And she actually fled the smallpox epidemic on foot. So she lived um, on the west side and she walked like all the way out to the San Gabriel Mountains to escape the smallpox by herself yeah by herself and some pretty horrific things happened to her along the way but she ultimately um she escaped the she didn't contract smallpox but like a few years later contracted tuberculosis and so oh wow and just that being a lung disease yeah i don't know it was just a lot to think about and process i think i'll get to writing about that story someday yeah. 
Yeah, but at the same time, like, I try to remind myself and my community that, you know, we're the descendants of the people who survived. So that resilience and that survivance is also in our DNA. So if we can just (laughs) tap into that instead of the trauma, but I think we're still processing the trauma. Right. I know that you're very active in your Tongva community. There was a moment where you weren't sure if you were going to be able to make something for EV because you had like a tribal gathering. So how is everyone in your community? Like, are you keeping in touch with them? How are you supporting them? How are they supporting you? Yeah, I've reached out to a few of the the elders, uh, like a bunch of times, just asking if they need groceries or supplies. But it seems like everyone's doing pretty well. I feel like a lot of the older folks especially were almost like, I don't know if they were prepared for like the stay at home order because they've been through other quarantines. But also just like some of the elders that I live nearby, they have like so many of the, our traditional foods like growing in their yard. Um, so right, they've been right. weathering it well and they haven't needed help from me. But I feel like all of our gatherings, like our powwow was canceled. So I don't know. It's just been quiet. I think people have been trying to enjoy the time at home. Do you think about, so I know you're a small business owner and you're an essential business owner. Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So are you still going into work? Like what does Um, that look like? So... Well, What's the business so I have first? multiple jobs. Okay. So, like, I was working on a construction site, like, the first two weeks of the stay-at-home order, finishing up a project, and then... Tell I... us what you do on the construction okay. sites, because it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, I am a cultural resource monitor. So, that means at any construction site where digging is occurring, I'm out there working with archaeologists, watching the dirt being disturbed and making sure there are not cultural resources. Now that includes plants, sometimes they're artifacts, sometimes they're animals too, and sometimes they're ancestors. Um, we always hope that's not the case, but it it, ha- we, wow. it happens that we find ancestors more than, yeah. you, more than, more you, than you would think. Yeah, yeah. We were living here in LA for 10,000 years, so... I always tell people, like, underneath L.A. really is a burial ground. So you were doing that? Yes. For I, the first two weeks of the shelter at home? Right. Um, and it was scary being out there. Um, some of the people that I work with weren't really believing that the pandemic was an actual real thing, so they weren't taking health precautions. So basically just told them that I wasn't feeling comfortable going back to that construction site. And we were almost done with the project anyways. So if I was going to contract it anywhere, it would have been there, even though we were working outside. So that's job one. Yes. And so meanwhile, all of this is going on. We're trying to figure out at our, my husband and I own a small business. So it's a it's a homebrew supply store, which I always describe as a weird grocery store. Okay. Because <laughs> we have, like, grains, hops, yeast, but we also have, like, a curated um, bottle shop with, like, hard-to-find beer and natural wine. So okay. Under Where the... is this? Let's do a shameless plug for your okay, business. Okay, so we... 
we have a store in Costa Mesa and um, during this pandemic we opened also our second location in Anaheim. What but is the name of the store? It's called Windsor Homebrew Supply Co. Windsor Homebrew Supply Co. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here yeah. first. Yeah. Okay. So meanwhile, we just were, I guess, one day at a time. We did close the first day of the stay-at-home order, which was my 34th birthday. <laughs> um, Happy birthday! <laughs> <laughs> But then we realized that, like, because we have dried grains and that we sell beer, we technically could stay open under grocery and also as a convenience store. Okay. So we just decided we weren't letting customers in. Like, they can call or email us their order and we'll bring it to their car. And then we'd also started delivering. That's what we've been but doing. But your circumstances really have shifted within the last, <laughs> like, month and a half yeah, right yeah like when everything it first started you were freaking the fuck out i was yeah yeah, yeah reasonably so yeah and we have five employees and we were freaking out that we would have to let them go if we close the doors right. but we've been able to keep everyone on the payroll um, amazing another layer of that is also like the federal aid stimulus aid what is it called the the loan, oh, the, for small, small the small business yeah. loan. Like, it's like a PPE or oh something. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, like trying to figure out how to apply for that. So how do you feel now? Like, I think that some people, like I know myself cause I've been working the whole time, but like the situation continues to, to be dire, um, in varying degrees. Uh. So I feel like last week I just had a like throw up my hands moment like why are we doing this like none of this matters like why are we even writing like we're all gonna die like what like do what like what has been like the kind of trajectory of the time for you yeah I think it was extreme anxiety at first where I could barely function and like also my mom got sick with what we think was coronavirus in late March okay so I was worried about her and she couldn't get the test because tests weren't available so it was like so much coming at me that yeah. I was like not functioning really and then I think I just sort of became numb after that <laughs> and I feel like finally like last week I started feeling more like myself again and like writing a little tiny bit and been able to actually focus on reading so right so you are one of the fellows who has had quite a bit of experience reading doing public readings and I know that you just did one this past Sunday. Oh. So you were in the Altadena Literary Review? Yeah. Um, so tell us how that reading went yesterday on Zoom. Yeah, it was interesting. There were so many readers. I want to say there were like 30 readers. And we each had okay. a minute. But it was also like the event was to pass on the torch to the new Altadena Poet Laureate poet laureate so there was like a ceremony too so the readings were broken up I mean I only read a short poem for a minute I think it went okay (laughs) I don't know know, because I don't know what's on the other side of it like I did get feedback from one person that they said it was awesome but I feel like she was biased I don't know (laughs) she already loved you so she gave you that she gave you that good review (laughs) that's what I thought I do think that the that is the huge challenge. I just started reading Daring to Lead, oh. Renee Brown, and she talks so much about the interaction between the audience and the speaker 
and how, you know, you are fed by that energy and you get to see how it's landing because you can see people's faces. In the Zoom format, we don't get that. Yeah. But I also know that you are something of an introvert. So (laughs) how do you feel, Megan, about you know, the whole rest of the fellowship going virtual. And you guys aren't even going to have your final reading. <laughs> I am, like, pretty happy about it, honestly. Really? Yeah, Why? I've just found that, um, like, for me, the transition into the virtual space was smooth. One, because I was going through so much. But right. Also, like, it. I mean, this is totally selfish, but I don't have to drive from Orange County to Beverly Hills and right like as an introverted like highly sensitive person like just commuting is like stimulating and then being like with people for like the whole day is like very draining to me sometimes yeah so like just being able to mosey on into my room and sit down like somewhere where I'm comfortable I feel like it's kind of awesome, but I'm probably, like, the minority in that. And I'm also lucky that I have, like, a space, a comfortable space away from the rest of my house. And so right. I recognize my privilege also in that. I've been thinking about the kids at home, too, that are supposed to be doing their schoolwork online, but a right. lot of them don't have computers, let alone internet. So Exactly. Yeah. I've asked everyone to read their log line. Okay. So I just want to know, I want our listeners to know what your project is, what you're writing about. Okay. I'm working on my first poetry collection titled Tongva Territory. Um, Tongva Territory maps genetic memory and endeavors to move beyond trauma toward a better future. Light is shed on Tovangar, the Tongva world, or the place now known as Los Angeles, where the entanglements of settler colonialism are confronted head-on. By moving between past and present, a path forward is found through the language, images, sounds, and songs of Honupitam, the ancestors. <laughs> so good! I haven't heard that version oh. yet. Have you been working on it with Vanessa, or are you just working on it yourself? Um, the oh no, I worked on it myself. I think I realized before I set the goal to put a collection together that I was pretty naive on what putting a collection together was. So okay, I think I've been working with Vanessa more on deciding, um, you know, what the what the collection's really going to be and what's going in there. Um, so I'm Great. really excited because I'm writing things that I'm more excited about. That makes me very happy. Yeah. So, so before we listen to you read your poem, um, let's talk about your volunteer project because I believe you have extended the deadline. So I let's have. let's okay. give people the opportunity to submit. Okay, so my project is called Totangvetame Mainok, which means Tongva people create. So I'm putting an anthology together for Tongva people to submit their artwork of any kind. And the deadline is July 1st. You can find more info at tongvacommunity.wordpress.com. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait. That's amazing. My plan is to use some of the money that I got from this fellowship to print books for the elders and to be able to provide those to them for free and also make the digital version of the book free for everyone which I think will be cool for educators too in LA 
Okay, thank you so much, Megan, and mm -hmm. let's hear you read a poem. Okay. Instructions for finding your way back. Instructions for finding your way forward. Instructions for finding Los Angeles. Instructions for finding Weashar Javot. Observe young oaks holding the slope over the 101. Observe as they lean their length over the red and white light stream. Observe the laser of traffic lacerating the east side from downtown. And know the leaves of the oak are convex for maximum consumption of sunlight. Know light springs from leaf to leaf so that collectively the canopy can grow. And now consider the night. Consider the journey of blue glow. Consider the impression of moonlight on oak leaves, countless spotlights rebounding back into black. Consider seeking the place where the sky begins. And realize dust motes will move into focus. Realize the gaze will rise to the stars. Realize the Milky Way is a village of ancestors. Remember them and concede there is still so much we will never know about the sky or the light from the stars. Concede there is still so much we will never know about the ones who came before us. Honor them anyway. Hear the dust motes colliding, hear the ting of metal chimes, hear breath through the hollow of bird bone, hear short vowels stretched out, hear the volume as it rises and falls, hear the swirl of sounds bouncing off of concrete walls, hear the revolution, and sing, we ashar chavot, sing, we ashar javot, louder. We ashar javot, louder. Feel the rhythm of blood song reverberate through the body. Feel the heart beam. Sing, we ashar javot, sing. We ashar chavot, repeat, gather, sing, repeat, gather, sing, repeat, and listen. Wait for the dust motes to float, flickering like faulty wire. Wait for photosynthesis. And trust the dust motes are pulsars passed through worlds and words and song. Trust the song will will her ascension. Trust the flow of the cars will cease. Note friction smoke to nose. Note wood to pavement scrape wine. Note the rumble crack through the concrete. See her emergence. See dust motes as beacons beckoning her upwards to sprout. 
See memory roused from the ground. See 500 years of branches expanding, spectral, spiraling into space. See yellow, pendulous tufts of oak flower. See her inflorescence alight and swelling into acorn. Acknowledge the density of her mast and wait for acorn rain. Recognize its sound. Guar, guac guar, guar, guac guar, guar, guac guar. And now we fill up our pockets with our futures. Okay, now it's recording. Nice. Hi. Hi. I feel like I haven't seen you in so long. I know, it's been forever. Just kidding. The lovely Damien Bellevue has been my test subject repeatedly through the uh, shelter at home situation because yep. for the longest time, he was having a pretty good, not that you're not now, but you were having like a really good shelter in place situation, right? I really was. Yeah, I was really enjoying it. But the tide has turned. Right. We were talking about this the other day. Um, well, actually, let's start with this. So Brittany Packnett Cunningham wrote an article, excuse me, an article for Cosmo. And the pull quote was, we are all weathering the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. That's a good and quote. It's a good quote. And also, you know, like, I'm sure we all see it playing out, you know, with our friends and across social media. And I, I see, you know, with the New York office very, very different um, situations for us and for them and even within your cohort. So tell us, tell us what your um, COVID-19 experience has been so far. So far, it started out pretty great. I actually, the first week when people started to panic, I took off that week of work because I was not, I was not feeling well, um, but it just turned out to be the stress of the job and I recovered pretty quickly. But uh, my job was pretty good about being able to set up all the editors to work from home. But so for the past two months, I've been working from home and it started out great and really dreamy and, you know, days spilling into other days. And um, I enjoyed that lack of time markers. But now I, uh, I'm, it's kind of getting to me. I don't mind it so much, but you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling to be stuck at home and not able to get out too much. Yeah. I'm, I'm acclimating to this new normal. Let's go into what it is that you do for a living. I'm going to read your bio. Okay. Damien Bellevue is a native of the San Francisco Bay area. This is like my uh, reporter uh, voice. And has spent over a decade telling stories in the world of reality television as an editor and director at Bunham Murray Productions. The founder of the Part Black Project, a Q&A photography series documenting ethnically mixed people like himself, Damien is working on his first memoir. You know, part of the fellowship is we work on a professional bio, we work on a log line so that you're able to like succinctly talk about your project. We kind of went back and forth about this phrase, ethnically mixed. Yes. And you ha you had some pretty strong feelings about talking about race. So tell so tell us about that. Yeah, sure. Happy to talk about that. 
you know, just through the sort of research I've been doing and reading that I've been doing, I've been make, making a real effort to move away from ca color categorizing people. I think, especially right now with the term people of color, it, it gets really complicated, you know, because for a long time, black people were considered the people of color. But with, you know, recent shifts in immigration and greater recognition for, you know, Asian people, indigenous people, being a person of color and being black are obviously two different things. And I don't know, I just think there's there's so much nuance and, and so many, I don't know, danger areas when it comes to talking about people of color, you know, and, and I, you know, I think as a writer, as an editor, as a thinker, I appreciate specificity. And so when you, usually when you're saying black person, what people really mean are African-Americans. If you if you go to Africa, they're going to talk about Kenyans or Sierra Leoneans or wherever you're from. And I, and, and I think like for me, that makes a big difference uh, addressing people in terms of like what their actual ethnic and cultural history is, as opposed to saying, you're all black, you're all white, uh, you're all brown. I, 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 do, I, I really don't know what those words mean. Intellectually, yeah. I understand it. But I think the flattening of people contributes to tensions and misunderstandings. I, I don't think it's conducive to a healing mindset, mind state. I appreciate that very much. Moving on to your log line. So oh, no. we're going to talk about your project and, and the fact that we're laughing because during the course of EV, like your project can shift a lot and talking about it can feel really like confronting because to, to you know, you're writing a book. How many pages are in the book right now? Like three, 45 or 50, somewhere up there. So we're like almost 400 pages and mm -hmm. I'm asking you to describe it in two sentences. Yeah. And it's like, it kind of is like ethnically mixed. It's like, how the fuck am I supposed to do that? Well, exactly. Sentences? Exactly. But I'm going to ask you to do it. Okay, so you want to know? <laughs> not so, getting an elevator with anyone that we don't know right now, but like, let's imagine that. that yeah, the elevator happen. pitches uh, my stories about a young, uh, half black, half white kid who. <laughs> Let me start over again. We're go back out of the elevator. We're gonna get yeah, back on the we're elevator. Out of the elevator. We're gonna get back in. <laughs> Ding. So, my story. <laughs> It's, it's so tough it's so tough it's, it's so, so tough hard. but but like, like try maybe don't intellectualize it so much like just you're explaining it to someone who's like not a writer like you just you you're telling this great story right. tell us what the story is about okay so my book is about growing up mixed in the bay area in the 90s and starting out as a kid through elementary school going to private schools and when my family's financial situation fell apart i had to transfer to the local public school which was like really thugged out and having grown up with no proximity of like the African-American side of my family, I didn't really know what it was to be black. And then I get to this public school and like all the black dudes are super thugged out. So in order to survive, I quickly had to sort of adapt and acclimate. Right. And so the story was, is kind of like the pivot and, and, and what happens and how you find yourself. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's a coming of age story about somebody who doesn't know the, the whole picture of their cultural background. And in order to survive this unique situation and graduate from high school, I had to basically become black. That was amazing. Thanks. So since you're a TV guy, yeah. who would play Damien? 
Who do you want for Damien? Oh, you know, it's funny because five years ago, Jaden, like when I started, Jaden Smith would have been the perfect age and the perfect look. And today, I just, I don't know who that would be, but I feel like... Do you think it's because we're older? I don't want to say old, but we're older. Because I think about it in the terms of my own work. And like originally when I started, which was like... 10 years ago, yeah, I was like, it's going to be Lindsay Lohan's comeback project. Oh, no. She's going she's to get her shit together. And it's like, it's, she's, cause she's such a good actress. And now it's like, <laughs> she's so like, there's no way anyone would ensure that person, but also she's like aged out. Yeah. She's definitely aged out. I mean, I think, I mean, this is a unique problem for my story is like, who are the mixed kids out there? You know, right. like for you, you're a white woman. There's like a yeah. lot of white women. And, and I mean, every year, I mean, you have more options. For me, it's like I would want it to be somebody who is mixed. Yeah, but there, but there's kids out there. I would just have to dive into like to the shows. But because I know there's a show called Smil- Mil- Milf or Smilf, which is like about yeah, yeah. A, a white woman with a mixed kid. Um, yeah. I mean, like mixed ish. She, she wrote that herself in Stars in it, right? Smell? I think so. I think so. I I haven't watched it yet. Have you seen, um, is it the 90s Jonah Hill's project? Awesome. Skater Kid? Yes, but that that is my world. That is the, that's the world. Like, that's that's my world. Like the the skater kid with the blonde dreadlocks. He would be great. He would be great. But he's not going to cut his hair. I mean, I don't don't know him personally, but I follow him on Instagram and I know of him and there's no way he's cutting that hair. But, He would be perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. And tell me, is, is there anything you want to say before we um, transition into your reading about your uncle? No. Is that what this is for? The reading about my uncle, I, I will just say that the original conception of that, I had, a, I had a series of character pieces at the beginning of my book, but through sort of reorganizing it with my mentor, Chris Terry, most of those portraits are now going to be folded into flashbacks. And this flashback takes place when one weekend where I go to stay at my uncle's house, he's been recently married and, um, you know, he's not too excited about the sort of rough life I've been living. On the day my uncle leaves, the daily city fog is thicker than usual. From the window of our second floor dining room, I see my uncle's mint green truck parked on our sloping driveway. He must have bought the 60s era Chevrolet because he saw something of himself in that hulking mass. Tossing suitcases into the truck bed, my uncle's bulging biceps and meaty shoulders make clear that the man and the machine are perfectly matched. My uncle climbs into the truck, backs down the driveway, and accelerates down Campana Avenue, away from me. I had never known the world without my uncle. For the first seven years of my life, he had been with me nearly every single day. At the age of seven, there were plenty of reasons why I might celebrate my uncle's departure. He spent a lot of time sitting on my head and ripping toxic farts. Him and his buddies would often pin me down, and unleash foul-smelling burps in my face. When feeling inspired, they'd grip me by both shoulders and attempt to belch the entire alphabet. 
Not one of them ever made it past J or K, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Some people, probably most, would find these antics obnoxious or disgusting, or at the very least, stupid. And yet I laughed. I laughed hysterically. I was just a boy, and I would laugh so hard that tears would flow. Through the farts and the burps, I would laugh myself out of breath because my uncle was laughing, and never, not once, did I ever feel bullied or abused or tortured. I loved the goofing off and the rough housing. I loved the loud laughs and playful pranks. I loved the intimacy, the closeness, the proximity of these men who were still boys, embracing me and playing with me and treating me as if I was one of them. I knew that later in the day, when they were not burping at me or farting on me, I would get to hang out as they rolled joints on the pool table and talked about girls and cars. I would get to watch them lift weights, pumping iron just like Arnold. I would get the honor of handing them wrenches and rags while they worked on their motorcycles. Later, my uncle would lift me onto the seat of his orange Honda. He would put his helmet on my head before kicking the bike on. I would hold on tight to the handlebars as my uncle's chest and arms and thighs contained me like a cage. We would plow through the cold, wet fog, smiling and happy on our way to Gellert Park. Gliding into a parking space, my uncle would push down the kickstand and cut the ignition before lifting me up, setting me down, and gently sliding his helmet off of my head. Gellert was home to a library, a baseball diamond, and a large playground. I would run across the tan bark and drop onto one of the rubber swings. My uncle would rattle and twist the chains until I was dizzy. And then he'd push me as I'd crank my skinny legs, bending and extending them as I moved backward and forward through the air, high, higher, too high, until he shouted at me to jump, at which point I would launch myself through the air. The weightlessness never lasted long enough. And with a thud, I would land, sending chunks of dusty wood chips in every direction. I'd whip my head around to see my uncle's face, laughing as he trotted toward me, making sure that I was okay. This is what most kids probably do with their fathers. This is probably how most kids develop trust. These are the things a boy does with a man and learns from a man that give a boy the confidence he needs to face life boldly and bravely. When my uncle leaves, these things end for me. Two years later, in those months before grandpa's passing, my uncle returned. I don't know what happened to my uncle while he was in Southern California, but he had changed. And while he was gone, I had changed. Our family and our world had changed. A lot can happen in two years. Relationships end, as do lives, and no one is ever again who they were before. Thanks, Damien. Okay. Yay! Claire Lynn is helping me celebrate Damien's reading. Tell us how your day's going. My day today. Start with the binge reading news. I haven't okay. been able to stop. Like that's okay. the first thing I do now. It's yeah. sort of a it's both it's a way of lowering the anxiety, I suppose, by knowing 
what's the death count of the day? <laughs> I don't know. So That's is that bad, isn't it? First is like finding out like the death count. No, no, no. My my husband does that, but you know, a lot of stories on the front page of New York Times, and I go through periods of times like right now ever since we are on lockdown like I, the first thing I do is reading the news during normal time I try not to do that but I've fallen back to this habit where does the comfort come from I don't know if it provides comfort I think it's just a matter of an anxious mind trying to know minor grasp of control yeah so like the story that that you guys are gonna hear later just the beginning of the short story the the girl was very anxious to find out what's gonna happen right. the, the future knows so like at <laughs> this moment like I keep imagining what's gonna happen you know like I can't wait for November like I just want the election to be over and right, I know right. what happened so you do strike me as someone who likes to know you like to know what's going on do yeah. you feel like that's reflective of your characters a lot of times in the short stories that you write I don't know. I, I think I fluctuate between either wanting to know or when, at the point where it's too much, I just shut down right. everything and I don't want to know anything. Right. I can't right. seem to find a good balance in between. Right. Do you Have there been moments... Actually, let me read your bio first so okay. we know who we're talking to. Claire Lin is the founder of Los Angeles Writers House. She grew up in Taiwan, has an almost PhD from Columbia Business School, a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, and training in clowning. I realize I'm reading your bio from your own website. Yeah, I thought you have a new version, yeah, like a, a simpler let's, version. Let's you want a simpler Claire version? Lynn version on Pan America's website. This is it, folks. This is what it's like when it's cash. When the conversation's just flowing. I mean, no one's going to hear any of these, right? You'll, you'll cut it down Never. to the bare minimum. People are going to hear all of this. Really? I'm not taking any of this out. I so. can help you edit all of these out. No way. I'm not. I don't need that help. I want all of the knit and the grit. Here we go. Claire Lin grew up in Taiwan, received a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from National Taiwan University and went on to get her master's from Columbia Business School, Smarty Pants. The winner of the 2018 James Kirkwood Literary Prize, Claire is currently working on a collection of magical realism stories about people transcending grief and mortality. Hi, Claire. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you recently spoke with our executive director, Michelle Frankie, and you talked about your stories and uh, how your writing is being affected by like our current climate and the pandemic and the collapse of like life as we knew it or know mm -hmm. it yeah so can you tell us a little bit about that well I, I think it really just heightened a sense that I always have like to me it's a very important question that is always at the back of my mind is why am I writing what's so interesting and important that I want to add to this trove of wars that are already out there and it, it was never an an easy question for me to answer in the affirmative. I mean, I mean, I do okay. don't never want to, you know, let that question go. I think it's important for me, but especially in a time like this, where, like you said, right, you, you realize how fragile the structure is, like the the life that we take for granted, where you know the things we care about is when's the next iPhone models coming out and what the spec is and that kind of thing. I mean, all of these are just so fragile the normal that, that we're used to. And this is not even, like, to me, this pandemic is not even the pandemic. It is like, right. feels like a pandemic 
light as bad as it is it's it's a rehearsal well, use, it's a rehearsal for what's coming is that well what it's mean? a rehearsal for something that could be very bad i mean you know this one has a death rate of up to one percent and it's right. it's not as it's not, it's not ebola right? right i mean not to not to really go there i'm just saying that it makes me appreciate how fragile society is but right. i have always appreciated how fragile life is um just yeah. because of my life experience that you know we could die anytime and so that go goes back to the writing i just always feel like well what's what's so important and interesting about my writing that i want to put it out there it pushes me to try and just dig deeper i suppose but i can say that i can tell you now i feel like Oh yeah, you guys should read my writing. This comes from someone who's about to read a story. It's such a great advertisement. Right, and it's so interesting too because I feel like you are already dealing with you, the biggest themes that you could possibly deal with is death. And like that is kind of like your story. Well, it's not kind of, those are your stories. So it's interesting to me that you're questioning their value or their importance. Well, I mean, I don't question the theme, but I do question what do I bring to the table? Because I search for that, right? I search for that in my, you know, the readings I do when I read people's book, I search for ways to make me see how despite, despite the fragility, despite we're all going to die and probably our writings won't survive, despite all of that, how do we still live in a way that's vibrant and passionate? Let's talk about your logline. I'm yes. asking all of the EVs to read their logline. So imagine, Claire, that we were ever going to get in an elevator with a stranger ever again. And that stranger potentially <laughs> wants Is the stranger to mask and wearing glove. a glove? <laughs> the stranger can be wearing whatever you want to make you comfortable. How about that? <laughs> All right, stranger. So here, here is my book. Okay. A grief-stricken woman struggles to make a wish when she chances upon a genie lamp. A girl starts a YouTube channel after being yanked back to the tribal jungle of her ancestral land to live with her mummified mother. A man, tormented by secrets, pays to have a last conversation with the dead. An old woman gets high and uphands a nursing home on the day she plans to kill herself. In this debut collection of tales that are foreign yet universal, comical yet heartbreaking, surreal yet true, you will take a wild ride to the edge between life and death in a world where someone dies in every story, but no one takes death lying down. Ooh, <laughs> I asked my husband, how's the last sentence? No one takes death lies, lying down. I was like, is that too cheesy? So is there anything, uh, as, we, as we go into your reading, is there anything that you want us to know ahead of time about the piece that you've selected? Well, so uh, for this piece, I think, uh, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's it's a Taiwanese girl in the middle of some upheaval within her first family life, within the broader political environment that she was in. This is a time when, well, she's, she's in Taiwan, but in China, Tiananmen Square was going on. Um, her parents were fighting for some reasons that would be in the story. And then there's a kidnapping happening in oh. Taiwan. A celebrity's okay. daughter was kidnapped. So there was a, a lot of anxiety. And I think I chose to read this because, you know, 
I'm full of yeah, anxiety right now. Of how yeah. Right yeah. So this that. is what happens when she was full of anxiety, and then because of that, she de- developed a very strange superpower. Love it, ladies and gentlemen, Claire Lynn. The future knows. Maybe it was because the fights between mom and dad. About the land Dad bought outside Taipei without asking Mom, or it could have been because of Tiananmen Square, the student protesters who occupied our young hearts with democratic fervor and patriotic lust, or maybe it was because of the kidnapping of the daughter of White Ice Ice. For weeks, everyone in Taiwan followed the search for the famous singer's daughter, who was twelve, same as me. So close was she to our age. My sister Lily was ten, and Fen Fang fourteen. That we felt as if we ourselves were lost. Whatever the reason, no one—not me, not my sisters, and certainly not my parents—distracted by their own cold war, noticed the first time my peculiar and short-lived power manifested itself. None of us, with anxiety running in all directions, realized what was happening the first time. I smelled an odor ahead of time. The first time I literally smelled the future, it hit me like a rotten egg. Damn! I said, "Who farted?" Hua, Dad said, "Watch your language." It was almost dinner time, and we were in the living room with the TV tuned to the police news briefing. This was before the ransom letter, before we knew for sure that the girl had been kidnapped. Lily and I were on the floor, pinning red flags on a map of Taiwan, marking the location where the girl might have been sighted. Dad was writing calligraphy on the flyers I asked him to make for the missing girl. Mom was distringing green beans at the dining table, and Fen Fang, sprawled out on the rattan sofa, was laboring over a letter to her pen pal in the United States. The sulfur stink lingered. I pushed the thick rim of my glasses up my nose and scanned the room for suspects. Not me, Dad said. I smell nothing, Lily said, sniffing. Mom kept quiet. She was still wearing her pink nurse scrubs, which Dad insisted she wear, even though she only answered phones at his optometry clinic. I knew she was thinking about the land Dad bought. It's Fen Fang, I said. She's not denying it. Hua is hallucinating," Fen Fang said, and erased the whole sentence from her letter with whiteout. The smell went away, and I let the matter drop. I went to our bedroom to hang the map on the wall, but when I came out to get more tape from Dad's stationery drawer, I heard the unmistakable sound of someone passing gas. "Got you, Pa," I said. <sighs> "Tell your father to stop munching on those sweet potatoes," Mum said. As if Dad wasn't right there. Stop munching on those sweet potatoes, I said, and took a piece for myself. We all laughed except Mom. None of us noticed that I smelled the fart before it happened, and I didn't realize that when I heard it, I actually smelled nothing. It happened again the next day. I had just reluctantly sat down to study when I smelled my favorite stir fry. I poked my head in the kitchen through the beaded curtain. Smells amazing," I said. "My ghosts and gods," Mum said, jumpy from daydreaming. 
On the chopping block was a slab of pork belly, raw. I sniffed my way to the walk, but it was empty and cold. Fen Fang appeared behind me and nudged me aside. "Ma, I'm meeting friends in school," she said. "Now, how about dinner?" Mom said, looking distracted and tired. "May as well start my hunger strike now," Fen Fang said and frowned at the uncooked everything on the counter, all judgmental. The big news that day: some students at Tiananmen Square had started a hunger strike. Fen Fang had announced that she would join them in support of democracy. I followed my sister to our bedroom. Don't you smell the stew? I asked. The air was sweet with caramelized onions. What stew, freak show? She said. But I swear, I said. You're crazy. I'm not. Yet even as I said so, the possibility grew in my mind. Just then, Lily came running in. White Hisaish received the letter. She yelled. Her eyes wide and her small hands fluttering and running ahead, in the living room, mom and dad stood in front of the TV with their arms folded, and there it was on the screen, the ransom letter. All right. Tell me when you. Tell me when you're ready. We are recording. Oh my God! Shenanigans! Hey yo! Can we do a thing? Can we can we clap? Cause Claire just read. Yay, Claire! Yay, Thank Claire! You so much. That was so good. Claire. That was beautiful. Was Shannon Gatewood. Yep. Shannon Gatewood was born and raised in Chicago and currently resides in Los Angeles. She has a bachelor's degree in sociology, has worked in both the nonprofit and corporate sectors, and currently works. Oh, did we fix this? And currently works in franchise support for a massive oh, company. We did. We I mean, I it. I sent you the updated one. You did, and it's not updated. So let me get to the end, and then you'll tell us what your new job is. Okay. Shannon is writing her first novel, a story that follows a family of black women after their father and husband die suddenly of a heart attack. Shannon,、yeah. where you work now? I work for Scholar Match, and my boss is probably going to be listening, so it's good that I can say this. But I'm a college advisor, so I'm supporting students on their academic journey. Amazing.、Mm -hmm. So, so let's talk about the fact that you're from Chicago.、Mm -hmm. You moved to Los Angeles. How long were you in Los Angeles before the pandemic hit? So I'm going on three years now. So I would say two and some change, and then、okay. I feel like I had just gotten used to like the idea of earthquakes and you know dealing with that. Yeah. And now、Absolutely. we're just in the house during a pandemic. So. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about、um, Brittany Packnett Cunningham wrote an article for Cosmo, and the pull quote from that article that I love is, "We are all weathering the same storm, but we are not in the same boat."、Mm -hmm. And I think that you we've seen that evidence even within your cohort. So, will you talk about your experience of of sheltering in place and like you just got a new job like right before this happened?、Mm -hmm. Like, so how has that played out for you? It's been a lot. Uh, to sort of juggle everything, but I will say I'm really glad that this new job can transition so easily online. I know like there are a lot of people who can't work from home, like they just can't. So I'm I'm really happy that I can still connect with my students and connect with like my boss and my coworkers and stuff. But yeah, on top of that, I was also trying to move, which is、right. surprisingly hard during a pandemic. How did that play out? Did you need? Did you get movers? Did you just like put everything in your car? And yeah. Just make it no, I mean I don't have a car, but um, so I, <laughs> okay. 
So I hired a task rabbit and two people helped me. So the guy had his own van and he was just like, here's the rate. We'll be there. He showed up with a mask and gloves on and just kind of moved my stuff. I had it all packed up and ready to go and just made it happen. But it turned out to be the hottest day of the year so far, which I didn't know. Oh my know. God, you moved on like <laughs> on Saturday. Day. Yeah, yeah. But it was pretty quick. So I, I really have no complaints and I'm just glad to be in a different space. Wait, you're handling this so well, Shannon. Outwardly. Internally, I feel like internally I was freaking out every day and I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And on top of like this whole, I mean, like, I don't know if you've like seen those people on Twitter who are like, yes, you're at home, do all these things you're supposed to be doing, like be super creative. Right. And I know you shouldn't listen to those people. There's still like that little bit of guilt of being like, I should be doing more with my time because I'm at home and, you know. So internally, I would say I was freaking out about all of those things, but it's just kind of worked out now. So I'm just, you know, taking it day by day. Yeah. Well, I think that just feeds into this whole idea that we're all in a different boat because you're still working full time. You're in this fellowship. You just moved. You started a new job. It's like, how much more really realistically could you be doing? Like, can you imagine <laughs> adding more Zoom calls to yeah. your day? No, I couldn't. But I probably would say yes anyway, even if I was overwhelmed. I'd be like, okay, sure, that's fine. Are you writing at all? And it's fine if you say no. Like, what is your create? What does your creative space feel like or look like right now? Yeah, now I feel like I'm recreating it. But before, no, I wasn't really writing. I had like a lot of ideas in my head, and I had like some momentum from talking to my mentor Rachel and like having some ideas. And then we were kind of just all shut down and dealing with the move where. In my old place, I was sandwiched between a bathroom and a driveway. That's not very inspirational to me. Uh, I realized, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. it'd be very inspirational to, you know, a lot of other people, but I also realized I like to go out and write. So like, I like being at coffee shops. I like having a set time for myself. And it was really hard for me to create that in the space I was in. So no, I wasn't really yeah. writing that much. But now I'm going to try because... You know, I have a different view. Um, we have like a balcony here. So I'm going to try to like make it work and create a new space for myself. Great. Can we whisper? Do we like the new roommate? We do. We do. Um, she's oh, working right do. now. So I don't know if she could even okay. hear. But yeah, she's cool. She's really cool. Okay. And we've been getting along. We watched Parasite together yesterday. Bonding. Amazing. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you been going to virtual readings? There's no right or wrong answer. Why or why not? I'm, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I went to one this past weekend, one that uh, Megan was, was reading in. So that was my first one. And it's, it's weird. I'm, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be honest. It's weird just because on one hand, I feel like I'm really thankful that we even have technology and that we can do this. Right. And that like, if people do want to engage in that way, it's there for them. But it's also like, while I'm sitting there, I kind of just want to like get up and go to my kitchen or like, I can't take myself out of the home type of thing so I feel like I'm not as engaged with just sitting in front of you know listening to somebody read so it's it's different I'm thankful but it's not my my fave way to engage with like content and literary creators right so let's talk about I talked to my roommate who's also a writer about what you guys are missing out on and I and I was like you know the the public readings for Mm -hmm. me because I'm such a ham that would be such a bummer. Like, I'm so bummed yeah. for you. And I know, and she was like, I would just be thrilled. 
thrilled not to have to do them because she needs to take like downers to do a public reading because she mm-hmm. gets so anxious. How do you feel about that? I was actually talking to somebody about this actually because the public reading part makes me probably the most nervous of anything that we do, but it also makes me the most excited because it's just not something I normally do. And like when we did the first one in January, I'm like, yeah, there's room for improvement here, but that was actually pretty fun. And like the energy from it, I've just, I haven't felt that before. So it is kind of a downer to not be able to be in front of people and read and like get like that immediate feedback and support. But I think it's nice though, because now that this stuff is going virtual, I feel like I can share it with more people who can't be there. Like my parents who didn't get to see the first one and I didn't really have anyone to record it. So now I can be like, oh, hey, listen to my podcast episode or whatever. Um, yeah. Or, you know, we're going to do this one. The virtual reading too. Exactly. Like teach them how to download Zoom if they don't have it. You know, so. Mr. and Mrs. Shenanigans. Yeah. I can't that's... wait to see you at the virtual reading yep. on May 15th. Also, this is Shannon's social media name. So yeah. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass. Even if you were, it'd be cool. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm asking everybody to read their log line, which is the succinct description of their work in progress. Mm -hmm. Please do. So, on the eve of his funeral, two sisters are stunned to discover that their father had a secret child. Daughters is a story of how these women cope with their grief and relearn what it means to be family. Obviously, I love that. Of course. Because we work back and forth <laughs> with it. But I'm going to say, like, you're sticking to it. Like, this is not the case for everybody. Like, you're like, this is my love line. This is what I'm writing about. Do you still feel that way or no? Yeah, I feel like it is a story. And the more that, like, I think about where the narrative is going, I'm like, it hasn't changed. I feel solid about it. How has it been to work with Rachel Harper, your mentor? I really, really love her energy. I feel like anytime I talk to her, I just automatically feel calmer and like she's just like welcoming me into her life and like talking to me about writing. We don't get to talk like frequently, um, but right. when we do connect, it's usually a really long conversation and, and it doesn't just feel like, oh, we're here to just talk about your work and that's it. But like she's checking in about my life and talking about her experiences. So I really do appreciate working with her and I feel like you did such a good job of matching us just in terms of our our overall vibe, which I think is really cool. I'm thrilled to hear that. Like, yeah. Because I don't know, like, I, I know the work speaks to, like, each other. Mm-hmm. But, like, you you are people. Yeah. So, like, even if the work was, like, really reflective and, like, this could potentially be, like, a great match, like, that doesn't always happen because yeah. of personalities. No. I feel like, I don't know, I thought you were like a magician because even when I met Anthony um from last year's cohort I was like wow I really connect with him like again overall vibe thing so I was like man Amanda is just too good at this um I don't know I can't hear that enough can you say it again you're you're just too good at this I don't know thank you man thank you thank you thank you so what do you want to say is there anything that you want people to know like do you want to talk about your reading like do you want to give us do you want to preface do you want to or do you just want to let it roll? I mean, I think we can let it roll. Um, I guess I'll say it's a section that I know is going to be in the book, but I don't know exactly where it falls in terms of the plot of the story. But I know that it's really important to learning about one of my main characters, Sophie. Sophie knew she had a father. 
long before she decided to cross state lines and pop up at his doorstep. She had a single photo of him and her mother, Paula, captured before she even existed, and she had the letters. By the time she turned 20, she was used to receiving postcards with no return address. They started arriving before she could read or even understand what they meant, but her mother would read them aloud anyway, sometimes twice, before putting them in a small wooden box she kept in the closet for safekeeping. These personalized notes arrived sporadically around major holidays. If one year she got Christmas, the next she got Thanksgiving. Fourth of July was rare, but still a possibility. Even MLK Day made an appearance at some point, unlike Easter, which never arrived. The cards were consistently signed with some message of love or affection with an indicator that it was indeed her dad, daddy, father, or once he even signed as Papa Bear on a teddy bear-themed card. That one didn't really stick. When Sophie got older, the discussion of where this mail really came from was never long. Her mother would say, your dad can't see you, but he loves you. That's why he sends you those. Or, you should feel so lucky. I wish I got postcards from my dad. She would then continue on into a rant about how her own father probably didn't even know her name and how all fathers are somehow no good in their own way. It was a waste of time to focus on what the other kids at school had. She should feel lucky. But she didn't feel very lucky at all. Whenever Sophie pressed on about why he would never call or why she couldn't at least send a letter back, Paula would brush it off with some excuse. He's sick, or he never stays in one place. But the days when she just didn't have the energy to pretend became more frequent. Then she'd reply, it isn't possible. It's just not. Now stop asking and put that away in your box. Sophie quickly learned to stop asking, but never stopped wondering. The one thing she could count on from all of this is that birthdays were never skipped, no matter what other holidays were highlighted that year. These were the special notes, often longer, and came in a decorated envelope, which she'd opened to find a card along with the crisp $10 bill. She remembered the first time she was able to open one of these on her own, asking her mother curiously, Hey... Do these always have money? Paula, sitting across from her with a cigarette perched between manicured fingers, shrugged and said, I don't think so. I've never seen any money. Sophie doubted this as she watched her mother adjust in her seat, realigning her bra where she knew she kept a secret stash of cash. She didn't say anything, though, quickly pocketing her bill, crumpling it in the process. Her mother took a long drag and sifted through the rest of the mail. You are so spoiled, she said. I wish my dad sent me money. Sophie just rolled her eyes and reread her card for the third time. When Sophie looked at what would be the final birthday card she ever received, she knew immediately that this one was different. Before she even opened the maroon envelope, and read the multi-page letter. 
or watched as several $20 bills slipped out and fluttered onto the floor next to her bare feet. She knew that this one was truly the only special one she had ever received. She knew because there, printed neatly across the top of the envelope, was her father, Michael Watson's return address. Ladies and gentlemen, we are speaking with M. Kigua. She's going to close out our show today. And we are just talking about the fact that we have, how many times now, M? This, this is the third attempt, third day, but multiple times within the day. We've had dropped, dropped uh, Google Hangouts, uh, dropped sounds. <laughs> um, and now we're both terrified that this is also not going to work. So Yes, especially since going back to the first conversation, that was just a brilliant one. And now, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to get from me. Yeah, I know. I feel, I feel like we, we were so proud of ourselves. <laughs> it's just like we're victims of our own, like, brilliance, I guess. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, so Kigua graduated from the London School of Economics and Political Science with her Master's in Media, Communication, and Development and has worked in the entertainment industry in the United States, Europe, and Africa for over 10 years. She's currently writing an adventure memoir spanning multiple generations. And the thing that made me laugh too is like you're the, uh, you have a master's in media and communication and, and yours is the one that we haven't been able to figure out. <laughs> That's how it works. Like life's great ironies come in those forms, I feel. Well, I, you know, I'm kind of thrilled because I do love talking to you. So, so I just wish we could talk about different things. And so right. But we can, we can beat that horse sometimes. I knew somebody that used to say, um, yeah, sure. Uh, what's that phrase? The choir. Oh, you're like preaching the to the choir. So you're preaching to the choir. And she would say, yeah, but the choir needs to rehearse. So we'll just look at it like this. We've, we've sung a few times. And now we're going to sing again. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. We've sung a few times, people, and now we're going to sing again. Okay, and so yeah. you are writing an adventure memoir spanning multiple generations. How do you feel about that uh, description of your your project today? Well, it's interesting because part of the EV Fellowship of Student class at UCLA and, you know, during workshopping, my professor sort of said, you know, you say it's an adventure memoir, but actually what I kind of see here are through lines of survival, of how people survive. A migration is one of those, whether it's people fleeing, whether it's people running away, whether it's people leaving for, up, for economic opportunities, and it's not necessarily such a dire circumstance, but migration, you know, it, it's in there, but it's actually about people surviving. And um, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of what are the ways that people survive and how, how did I survive? How, you know, how, how did I sort of, how was I able to get out of a system that didn't necessarily want me to grow and thrive and become all the things I want to be? And so I think that right now what I'm working through is thinking about the, the book as my sort of bafflement and my sort of being like, okay, well this is where it was and this is where it is today. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's not how we got here, but this is what I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm curious how you feel about the idea of survive versus thrive. I'm a really, I mean, I feel like sometimes it can be really cliche, 
And I feel like sometimes the language of thrive, you know, especially when talking to, you know, disenfranchised or underrepresented communities, it can really start to go into, you know, oh, like you curate your own fate and like you can do all these things to alleviate yourself. And, and for a large part, I do definitely believe that we are masters and mistresses of our own fate and we can do whatever we want. I also know that there are very real institutional limitations and restrictions that have to do with history, that have to do with violence, that have to do with colonialism, patriarchy, that stop us from being able to, you know, actualize into our full self. But I do think at the core of my book, what, or the core of my story, personally, the things that I have been exploring are, what does it mean to be free? And then being able to free oneself, spiritually, sexually, intellectually, means to sort of unmoor yourself from from some of the limitations that one has felt stuck. Let me let me speak from my own personal experience. Being able to say that I'm no longer surviving but I am thriving has meant for me to be able to take control of my own destiny in a way that um, has led to adventures, in a way that has led me to do things my family may not have agreed with, but I felt was right for me to be able to transcend things that maybe based on my sociopolitics, society said you shouldn't be able to do that. But I sort of felt like there must be a bigger world out there for me. It can't just be this. So my book grapples with these questions, right? The the real limitations that we all face based on these institutional structures and then the and then the self within it and the things we want individually you know, and who we are amidst all those things. That's definitely present in my work. Okay, let's hear your log line. I know you have two versions, so give us yes. both. Okay, so when I first started, um, this was the one I went with. It was Insatiable is my coming-of-age story, a poetically raw adventure story about a girl navigating sexuality, migration, and power. And that's very succinct. It doesn't tell you much of what's going on, but gives you a little nugget and a taste. Right. And then the second one, I think, kind of comes into what we've been talking about. Insatiable is my coming-of-age story exploring how people survive or don't across continents, adventure, politics, and love. Poetic and raw, I'm writing for the many who fell through the cracks and my bafflement that I didn't. Let's talk about the title. So insatiable is somewhat salacious and um, I've seen some of your work, you know, I sat on the selection committee. I uh, read your, the piece that you submitted uh, with your application. I've read or listened to your work at the welcome party, this podcast. I've listened to this piece that we're all about to hear and I haven't heard or read any of the sex that we talk about the sex parts. parts. (laughs) One of the other EVs went to hear Marlon James at cam and he was saying, you know, basically his his comment slash complaint was like, where's all the fucking in books. I don't know if he said that I wasn't there, but it was like, you know, novels, there's not enough sex in novels. It's something that we're doing quite frequently. You know, I think about it like in the terms of like, where, where are all the periods? Like when women are right. be, are writing their women's stories, how come everybody's not bleeding every twenty eight days? And what do you think that's about? Days, but but the week before, when your body is going through hormonal changes to prepare for the bleeding, and the week after, when you're ovulating because you've just bled, it's 
when you technically think about it, the menstrual cycle is ongoing throughout the month. Why do we not? It, it's such a big part of menstruating people's lives. How do we not talk about it more? I don't know, bro. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to tell you right now. I got my period this morning. It's never ending. Talk to me about, talk to me about why we don't talk about those things. Where's the fucking and where's the periods? And how I completely agree with you. This is, you know, part of what we've been talking about the last few days and different iterations. And right. So many, so many sex talks. So, so many. The thing that comes to me is, so a few days ago when I was in the shower, another title came to me, which was The Matriarchy is Coming. And I feel like that title sort of sums up what I am discussing in, in my memoir, because it comes down to this part of, so insatiable for me when I first thought of that title it was about coming into this sense of the erotic does not have to be sexual. Right. It's, it, it's that sort of life force, it's that Audre Lorde, you know, the erotic is it's life affirmation. It's that, it's that source within us that compels us to sort of create the extraordinary out of the ordinary that propels us outside of the mundane and just really makes us like rebel in life. Right. But for me, a lot of how I came to understand my power and my strength as a professional, as somebody who just lives in this world was through my sexuality and understanding that, you know, I have an insatiable appetite in a particular way and that it allowed me to be so embodied and to show up in all other aspects of my life whole and complete because I knew I owned myself and I knew that my body, my sexuality, my appetite, my desires were mine and I could ask for them as I wanted and I could demand of it as I wanted and I could take that out into the other world. And so that's where that sort of title came from. But shifting from that because it is more salacious and it's sort of more in your face, sort of look at me, look at look at how I'm owning my power. And I feel like the matriarchy is coming is more of a sense of, well, in an imaginative, creative world that we all want to live in, hopefully, it doesn't have to be so binary. Uh, we, we can talk about periods and still be respected. We can talk about our sex as women and still be held as intellectual, as ambitious, as serious. We can, we can sort of come with our multiplicity. And so to me, before the title before sort of stems from this place of being like, I know you don't like me talking about sex, but I'm going to put it in here. And I feel like the matriarchy is coming is much more about, no, actually, this is the way I've been living is the world I want to live in. And this is just a peek into what this would look like on this end. Girl, I love you. I uh, can't wait to hear this reading. <laughs> and um, thank you so much. Thank you to the audience. Please support these writers however you can. We're doing a reading on May 15th. Please show up in the virtual space. Look to the EV web pages, Twitter, Facebook, the Pen America webpage for all details. And uh, we'll see M's face hopefully on May 15th. And I say hopefully because her a Wi-Fi connection is garbage. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to try and get it together, though. Amazing. All right, Mama. Can't create with horrible Wi-Fi. We cannot. All right. All right. Nineteen ninety. The same year Nelson Mandela is released from prison and Margaret Thatcher's reign comes to an end. A year after the fall of the Berlin Wall, 
and a few years before the dot-com boom begins. There must be an electricity in the air, some sort of current sifting through the collective unconscious. But according to my mother, her father remains unbothered. Sure, he's glad for the fall of communism, and along with it, state-sanctioned atheism. But when it comes to me, the newborn, he's adamant. There is no God in my conception. A child born out of wedlock is cursed, he says to my mother over the phone. I cannot touch her. But my grandmother, bless her heart, is more open. She understands that love is its own prayer, that I am kin of kin, Lilith of her bloodline. But of course, this is not a memory I remember. No, my first memory is somewhere around seven years old where thoughts, feelings, and desire coalesce into shape and form. My grandfather, a man the color of baked pecans, sits short and sturdy on our floral settee singing. Maybe it is because his voice is a true bass. So deep it settles into the corner edge of the melody. Or maybe it is because I'm sitting on the carpet in front of him, a studious student, that his voice overpowers me like open-handed waves, an ultra tide slapping itself against the shore's sandy skin. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I watch his face as he sings, a saccharine shining universe beaming itself between Uganda and my mother's English living room. Even though I'm sure he's not nodding, his body seems to sway this way and that, as though the whole of himself is agreeing to a question that was never asked. After my father, he's the second man I've ever loved, and I'd kiss his gnarled hands if he let me. Only after he's paused long enough for me to know he's finished do I ask, Jetja, grandfather, please tell me the story. He leans forward and I sit very still, as still as I possibly can, ready to burn each syllable he says to the back of my throat. He says, you love that story, Melly. Well, the Mbuti are not so easy to find, you know. Even for me, a real Muganda man, it was not easy to find them. They like to be deep in the forest, just by themselves. I would walk and walk and walk just to find them. I try to imagine the short man in front of me looking for pygmies, lithe and khaki and safari wear, trekking through a carnivorous wild. He continues. Finally, as I approached their homestead, someone would yell out, Owa! Yema wa akundeba! How far did you see me? To which I'd respond, Kuli, kuli, kuli! Scrunching my face, I ask, Kuli, kuli, kuli! Like a bird? He shakes his head and says, No, it means I saw you from far, far, far away. You know, pygmies are sensitive about their size, so you have to tell them you saw them from far away so they feel proud. If you tell them you only saw them when they reached in front of you, well, then you better run with your little legs because they will, Chiboko, beat you for calling them short. Now it's my time to laugh. But Jaja, they're so little. A little person like that can't Chiboko me. He tuts, 
That's why they're so tough, because they're little. They have a lot to protect. I tell you, if you mess with a pygmy, you'll regret the day you lived. They asked a lot of questions, of course. I told them about the one true God. It wasn't easy, but I know some listened, and at least that was one more soul saved. Secretly in a place hidden from my grandfather, and maybe even God himself, I wonder if it wasn't that the Mbuti wanted to hear about Jesus, but rather that they accidentally mistook my grandfather as one of their own, a little big man among little people. But I'm no dummy. I know to keep my queries to myself. How many times can a man be born anew? How many times can mere mortals, men and women of flesh and bone, ask an intermediary to step between the veil and their soul? Can we really live sinless in constant exaltation of the grand creator of all? My grandfather seems to think so. He says so many big words that I see his faith like a living, breathing thing, pulled from root to scalp, spinning within him from day to evening dusk. Steadfast though he remained, he said what he said and he was what he said he was. But it would take me many years to understand what he was doing, to see the shadow, to see how stories buck and bray, leaving behind a garbled nest of spun gossamer. PEN America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit PEN.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the emerging voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely. <laughs>